and uh, so you you started the gentrification of Northeast Portland. Well, that's what a lot of people all, say yeah. I did, and I and I don't I don't shy away from it because by June of 1989, three months later, I had 135 listings. Wow, on the market at once. Wow. And you couldn't go anywhere in inner Northeast Portland for three years and not see my name. Welcome into Priced Out the Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Morgan, with your other host, Cornelius Ward. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. We got a part two. Part two of um, of our interview with Fred Stewart. And this is, um, of course, the Priced Out Podcast, where we talk about gentrification, affordable housing, and um, inner city housing issues in Portland, Oregon, but around the country. And so in part one, we talked with activist realtor and um social media bomb thrower fred stewart <laughs> uh, who is featured in our documentary priced out 15 years of gentrification in portland oregon and fred was telling us about his own personal history with albina the black neighborhoods of north and northeast portland how he came to the city what it was like when he grew up in the 70s what it was like as a community and then what happened once gangs started started coming into the area from California and gang culture started coming into the area from California. At that time, there was a lot of abandoned buildings. We've already covered redlining uh, and housing discrimination that drained the community of investment and capital, how people were not allowed to participate in the free market, uh, and this just caused the community to, to literally wither, the buildings literally, literally to wither. And then it was an easy target for crime. So now we're talking about the late 80s when gangs are at an all-time high, homicides are at an all-time high, 10% of the buildings in the neighborhood uh, are abandoned. And Fred, you decide you're going into real estate in the neighborhood. Well, it was a, a not an automatic. Initially... You got to go back to when I was in the Marines. I was in the Marines, and when I decided to get out, the Marines said, well, you know, fine, you can get out, but we're not going to continue to pay, help you pay for your college education. Isn't that part of the, the, the deal, though, they pay? As long as you're in the Marines. I mean, I... How do, you, how do you go to school and be in the Marines? You have to be in the reserves? Yeah, well, you have to be attached to a reserve unit. Right. You can be an active duty reservist, and I was attached down to the six engineers over here in Swan Island. So... I, um, when I decided I was going to settle down with my, my ex-wife, I'd made a kind of a commitment to myself that if I ever met anybody, being that I was a military brat myself, I wasn't going to put any, you know, a wife or any kids through what I went through. What do you mean? Well, it's not easy being a military brat, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, moving around all the time, moving around. You're always a new person in town. As a black kid, you're always outnumbered and surrounded. If you think we're a minority everywhere else, be a military kid everywhere you go. You are outnumbered and surrounded. And in my experience growing up, I rarely had any problems racially on military bases. Mm-hmm. Never really happened. But off base, some of the places that we were at, like in Texas and Oklahoma and stuff, were extremely racist. Dealt with a lot of racism. And I just didn't, I wanted my family, if I had a family and I wanted one, I wanted them to have some roots. I didn't mm-hmm. want to move around. So believe it or not, I got in the Marines as a way to finish the last two years of my college education and still be able to, you know, t- take care of my ex-wife and I. And uh, my plan was to move the entire family out to Gresham. Mm-hmm. I wanted out of inner Northeast because since I grew up here, these weren't just gangs to me. These were families I knew. These are people I knew. And you were saying uh, in the kind of unedited version of the interviews mm-hmm. that we did for Priced Out that a lot of families that you knew felt this way and were eager to get out of the neighborhood. They wanted out. A lot of white people, and the, and I blame the journalism mostly for this. But you know, blame you, my you journalism know, you, specifically. You, well, no, not so much yours. You 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 know you know uh, I don't agree with everything that you got in your movie, but you are the closest um, anybody has come to actually what happened. That's what mm-hmm. I tell everybody. I said, 
Cornelius is the closest anybody's come to exactly what happened. Most people try to color it in these shades of other communities mm -hmm. from other places, not from here. Um, and the only reason I think you got some things wrong is it's hard to put your head around all the things that were moving at the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I was like a lot of black people. I wanted out. Now, I was scared. Now, just not to leave a comment dangling, mm -hmm. because I think people would want to know, when you say the film got something wrong or got a few things wrong, what do you, what do you think those were? It wasn't so much as wrong as just the story's bigger. It's like, right. saying, like you said, you just left things hanging. Right. You, right. You but it's a documentary, like I tell a few people. You can only... It's like putting Lord of the Rings in a movie form. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or, or Game of Thrones. If mm -hmm. you're into Game of Thrones like I am. You, you can't put every storyline mm -hmm. you know sure, to talk yeah. about it, into it that's why i keep saying Cornelius needs to do at least one or two more TV, you know tv series so 30 years ago right now um i was not planning on selling homes in inner northeast northeast portland i was hoping to get out in aggression and i was gonna i was right 30 years ago right now my brother and sister and i were begging my mother to sell that house she bought over there in cleveland street and let's buy a house out in Gresham and get the hell out of Northeast Portland. And my mother worked at Emanuel Hospital. And the only reason we didn't leave is my mother wouldn't leave. And there was no mm. way we were leaving my mother alone. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There was no way. But if my mother 30 years ago said, okay, kids, you know, we're out of here, I would have gone and my career would have been different. I just would have tried to sell. To be honest, I was only planning on being in real estate for about two years. Mm. I wasn't planning on you know, what I'm doing here. You know, now I'm coming up in my 30th year. Wow. My mother uh, wanted to stay because she was only about what she, you know, she lived just off of Alberta and Cleveland. She worked at Emanuel Hospital. So my mother uh, liked it because she was only a few minutes away from work. Plus, my mother owned a home. And this is one of the reasons, too, why owning a home is a big deal to me. My mother always wanted to own her own home. And when she got it, she's still in it. You understand what I'm talking about? She won't let it go. You know, you understand what I'm talking about? And and um, I, I understand that more now than I did back then. You know what I mean? But that, when my mother bought that home, I mean, that was like, that's not part of her DNA. Ain't going nowhere. You, you know what I mean? You know, you can't turn your back on your mother. <laughs> you better not. You know, you just can't turn your back on your mom. No matter how much you wish you could, that's still your mom's. So my mom... Here my mom is living on a street where we got drug houses. We got prostitutes. We got pimps. We had a drug house in this duplex behind us where um, all uh, girls could just go there. They're usually hookers, but a lot of times they weren't. They would just go there and have sex with whoever was there and get drugs. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that was behind um, in, in the back of our house, my next door neighbor to the back. And, you know, my mother could hear all that stuff going on. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And, you know, it was my brother and I, we wanted, my si and sister, we all wanted out in the most insane way. But my mother just wouldn't let us go. So you start in real estate and you get your license. Well, I got my license and What was the September. market like? It was horrible. Um, How did you, what was the first house, house you sold? It depends on what you call selling. Um, <laughs> the first house I actually sold, sold, was to a guy I went to high school with named uh, Ray Elliott. And uh, it was over in um, Concordia neighborhood, on Northeast 23rd, about two blocks north of, of Ainsworth. But there were a couple other houses I ended up basically helping people buy. The houses were so cheap, there was no way for me to make any money. Mm -hmm. You understand? But they were, you know, friends of my mom's. They wanted to buy this house. And I remember helping them do it. Didn't charge a commission because they didn't have any money. How and much did the house sell for? One sold for $1,500, one sold for 5000 And the reason why they wanted <laughs> to buy it. you're making 3% or something like that? <laughs> back then we were making 7 to 10%. Seven, well, they're, they're doing that again now. Yeah, well, 7 to 10%. But the reason why they wanted to buy the house was they just didn't want to pay the money to move. The, le the, the owner was selling the property. Well, one was back taxes. The 5000 one was there was back taxes. So they basically paid the back taxes. 
You understand? And Rather they, than move because they were renting. Yeah, and then the owners said, okay, good. You do that, I'll sign the house over to you. Right. And uh, they barely had enough money to pay the back taxes. Give us another a sense of like what what the market was like, what the what these houses were selling for, and like we had if you houses, had houses that were abandoned, we, we, were you selling? We, we had houses? houses that were torn down because they needed new roofs. Mm. I've seen a house, uh, the decision to tear down a house because the plumbing was shot, mm. and they needed new electrical. And these are yeah. old historic these houses are, now. It, I mean, these this one house, considered this neighborhood is a very this historical one house over on Going Street was one of the nicest Victorians I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Right, beautiful. It needed new plumbing. It needed new electrical. The plumbing um, had burst one of the winters before, so the bid came back to do the new plumbing and new electrical for the whole house it was five thousand bucks. Mm. So the owner went down and paid like a hundred bucks for a permit and tore it down <laughs> because right. it, the house was only worth five thousand bucks. Right. So the owner could be like, "Why am I gonna?" pay taxes on a house you understand that's only worth five thousand and i probably need twenty thousand dollars worth of work i mean right off the bat five thousand right. for the plumbing electrical right so he says look i'm gonna tear the house down and then i'm gonna go down to the county and say there's no longer a house on it lower my property taxes right you, you right. understand and call and call it good property taxes were much higher back then right that's another thing too that you know um journalism doesn't really cover Back then, the average house in, in Northeast Portland had a millage rate of twenty-eight dollars and fifty cents per thousand. Mm -hmm. And uh, in nineteen ninety-one, we were we were uh, most of us going to be between thirty-three and thirty-five dollars per thousand. Mm -hmm. Now think about it. If that was the case today, do you, do you can you imagine how how high property taxes would be? Right. Because right. you know, because back then, you know, property taxes were didn't have a cap on them. Like measure, mm -hmm. you know, measure five put on it. Right. So in the in the in the mid nineties, early in the early nineties, nineteen ninety one, nineteen ninety one, and then reaffirmed, I guess, in ninety four. Yeah. Yeah. Refined. Um, what happened was the like all, all the West Coast states, uh, there was a property cap movement, and that meant that all the property taxes were frozen here in Portland and in Oregon, and they could only grow by three percent. Correct. A year if they're if hey, they're not reassessed. We have people in Northeast Portland who had houses in which their tax bill was higher than their value of the house. Mm. So in other words, the house is worth five grand and your taxes are six. Right. So right. people were just like, this has got to stop. And, you know, this is, I, I, I want to take this time. I'm a Democrat, but this is why I tell people. Democrats are getting their butts kicked. You you are a Democrat. I'm a Democrat. I'm a proud. We're going to bring I'm, that up later. I'm a proud. I'm a proud progressive, but I'm not stupid. But this is why I'm bringing this up. Um, we had a lot of older people selling homes because their house is worth five, but their property taxes are six thousand a year. You understand? So yeah. imagine this trip of thought. You understand? Your house is only worth five thousand, but you got to write a check to Multnomah County. For six thousand yeah. dollars, and Democrats in politics act like they're surprised there was a tax revolt. Right. <laughs> you know, especially people on fixed incomes. Think about it: you're on a fixed income. You lived in this house for thirty years, mm -hmm. right? And now you can't sell the house for your property taxes. And we see taxes as an issue in all sorts of gentrifying communities, especially where you know they don't have caps, where the home values start to go up because maybe their taxes are low, and then as the neighborhood gentrifies, even if someone owns their house, yep. they can't, they're on a fixed De income. Grandma cannot Democrats stay ahead of the taxes. Democrats are horrible at paying attention to things like that. And that whole uh, tax revolt of 1991 could have been avoided had Democrats paid attention. And to it's the very suffering. complicated now, because now you have these neighborhoods which were at an all-time low, their taxes were frozen, mm -hmm. and now they have very very low taxes compared to other neighborhoods with the same house values well yes but that was a little bit exasperated by a 1992 court decision that said that inner northeast portland specifically had been overtaxed mm. so they so not only do we have the measure five come in taxes were reverted back to 1988 and then they oh. couldn't go up until okay. after the 1995-96 tax year i think it was.
So Inner Northeast is even further behind. So people pay a premium to buy houses in this neighborhood because the taxes are so um, so low. So low compared so low. to the and rest of the city. they're going to stay low. Yeah, so you have someone who's out in East County that maybe it has less money, mm-hmm. has a house that's worth $400,000. They're paying, paying a little bit higher taxes. thousands and thousands of dollars in taxes. Correct. You might have someone with the same home, or a home that's worth 600000 in Northeast there's, there's a paying a few house. hundred dollars there's in taxes. There's a million-dollar house I know right now where the property taxes just touch $4,000 a year. Wow. And it's a million-dollar wow. home. But then I think, I remember when I sold that home in 1990 for 25000 bucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Think about it. I mean... 1890, this big, beautiful house that's worth a million dollars today. I'm sure if I took you by there and you brought you and your girlfriend there, and, and your girlfriend would say, if at all possible, <laughs> get this. You know what I mean? But so, that house sat on the market for four years and finally sold for 25000 so, you know. So it was a, how did you survive in this, in this environment? Because well, we, we never hear this story about... A, you know, we always hear about abandonment of the neighborhoods or there's crime. I was like, uh-huh. oh, before gentrification, people are like, oh, well, you know, gentrification saved that neighborhood, you know, how, coming how, at it how from that I angle. I, how well, do you survive well, as a realtor in this environment? Well, I was lucky. I, I slipped into a bad accident. I had some neighbors that couldn't sell their house. They found out I was a real estate broker. They knew who I was. And they came to me and said, Fred, can you help me, you know, sell my house? And it was pretty bad. We had real estate brokers who would li- send the listing in the mail and have the seller the owner of her fill it out and send it back. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't even come out to pick it up. We had a ton of homes in the market that had no signs for two reasons. One, a lot of thugs like to steal the signs. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. But then, kids, right? But but then the realtors would be like, and we're not talking about the post sign. Uh-huh. I started that in Northeast. Mm-hmm. I was the first one to put the post signs up. They used to put the stick signs in, uh-huh. right? And then people steal them. Some people use them for firewood. Right. You know, used, it'd, be, it'd be hilarious. So then real, I mean, uh, real estate companies back then said it wasn't worth any money to put a sign out on a house in the inner Northeast because they were just going to steal it. And, you know, and right. plus, those white folks, and they were all white, they didn't want to come into inner Northeast that they didn't have to. So most, I'd say about 90% of the homes that were on the market in inner Northeast Portland didn't even have a sign up. So me, I put up um, a post sign when I got my first listing. Grace of God, luck, and the fact that I grew up here and knew mm-hmm. where people were. Like I could see somebody and go, that's Victor. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. I know where Victor lives. Right. Most white people, they see Victor, they'd be scared of Victor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I grew up with Victor. <laughs> you yeah, understand? Right. We, we've been in fights before, playing over at Irvington Park. You now, would you get leads as a result of oh that, especially as things start heating up and properties I started getting leads. Man, this is something I did not appreciate, you guys, until I got back in the real estate business. Now, you got to remember, this is '88, right around this week. It must have been 30 years ago this week. I went to to Nordstrom's and spent five thousand dollars buying buying four new suits and all the accessories that went through it. I spent five grand on suits and. Uh, I look at this cutting figure I had to have been. Uh-huh. I'm driving a, I'm driving what was considered a cool car back then, a Camaro, black on black Camaro. There you go. I'm wearing these, the IROC, these suits and stuff like that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking like a business guy, and I'm a young black guy. I mean, I to this day, if I can't wear a suit perfectly, I won't wear it because you know it's the Marine in me. So I, I look at old photos of me in those suits. And I'm like, oh my God, I stuck out like that, you know, like a sore thumb. And uh, so what happened was um, I started getting, as my signs went up, I started getting more and more, you know, leads and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I was working at Franz Bakery. I was very mm-hmm. lucky too. Uh, Mr. Mr. Franz hired me when I decided to leave the Marines. I had to replace my income. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd known Mr. Franz since I was... 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. So he gave me a job at Franz Bakery. I was one of two black employees for, until James Posey's son got there. Mm-hmm. Then there was three black employees at Franz Bakery. And at the time, there hadn't been 10 black employees in the history mm-hmm. of, uh-huh. of Franz. So I was making good money back then just as 
uh, doing a baker. I was, you know, I was probably cash putting in the bank five, six hundred a week. And Fran's Bakery is a is a big bakery, kind of like the, the Wonder biggest, Bread of, of Portland. Well, they are. They do make Wonder Wonder Bread now. They own the Wonder Bread license. Do they really? Yeah, they they're the largest privately owned bakery west of the Mississippi, second in the United States. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, and uh, there's no Franz is running any anymore. Mr. Mm-hmm. Franz was the last fa- that I know of family member that ran it. But I had no idea how much history. If you remember, I was young. I had no. So, so you were young. You you got this job. Yep. You also have a realtor's license. You're selling houses. Yeah. I'm assuming the market starts picking but up a little bit. No, Is that it what never happened? didn't. No? It didn't pick up until well. Let me explain this. Eighty-eight to on all of eighty-nine, I'm just doing one thing, and I'm trying to make Cleveland Avenue between Alberta and Kenilworth safer for my family. Mm-hmm. And that's where you know the whole. Like one of my neighbors says, the legend of Fred Stewart happened because mm-hmm. I had to deal with thugs and gang members. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, would you say stuff. you related to Nikki Williams's story that we see in our first film, mm-hmm. Northeast Passage, where she's constantly um, calling the cops on what she thinks are drug houses on her street? Yeah. Well, you see, I I did that only a couple of times. You lose a lot of cred if you call on the, the street if you call the kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're fighting to clean up your neighborhood. Not even my neighborhood, just my street. Just your street. I, I wanted my mother and my brother and sister to be safe. And I think that's what helped me is in the initial, that's what people knew I cared about. You know what I'm talking about? They knew I wasn't trying to clean up Northeast Portland yet. You know what I'm talking about? That came later. All I cared about was this little patch of area were the people I cared about. I used to tell So when did the that. neighborhood start changing? When did you start noticing a change in the neighborhood? It started in March 4th, 1989. I didn't know what was going to... I didn't see this coming at all. I decided to do a broker's open because I had three houses on the market on Cleveland Street. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have them all open. So I had this weird idea of... Um, you know, I learned some things about why houses weren't selling and I was fighting against it. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why houses weren't selling was back then FHA had a minimum uh, loan amount of thirty-five thousand. Okay. But the average house is selling for like ten. Right. So what I did was I would look and see what the house would would should sell for. Mm-hmm. Let's say it was sold for fifteen. Mm-hmm. I would list it for thirty or thirty-five. Wow. You see, what I'm talking about because uh-huh. I knew if I sold one, it would validate all the others. There, mm-hmm. the values were so low here you couldn't get a loan. Right, right. You, it was, you understand? Yeah. It was just so low. And uh, so I had to build equity. Right. And so you artificially created equity just to see if you could you could I put could some air it. in the tire. So then I did a broker's open. Since I had all three on the market, I invited you know hundreds of real estate brokers. I also invited what was considered the black leadership back then. I mm-hmm. you know I sent out a letter to, and a phone call, made a phone call to Ron Herndon mm-hmm. and out there and uh, a bunch of people. I won't mention all their names. I'll mention Ron, but I'll, I won't mention sure. pretty much everybody who considered themselves a black leader back then. And I told them what I was trying to do, what my goals were and everything like that. And and I invited um, the entire city council. Everybody in city council called me and told me they couldn't make it. But they all responded, you know, say, hey, uh-huh. you know, thanks for the invite. None of the black leaders, mm-hmm. not one, responded. Not one. Now, we got to remember, I'm 23. I'm a young black realtor. There's only 10 black real estate brokers active in Portland at the time, mm-hmm. you know? And um, But what happened at the open house then? Well, about 40 or 50, uh, all white, 40 or 50 real estate brokers showed up from all over the city. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Hmm. You know what I mean? Because I was doing hamburgers and stuff like that. About 40 or 50 white people showed up just to support me, mm-hmm. especially because I was working for Lou Snyder at the time. But another person, two other people showed up, and this is where things started to change. Um, Neil Kelly, uh-huh. Mr. Kelly, sure. personally showed up. Cabinet maker? Uh, bigger than that. Yeah, bigger yeah. now. Yeah, bigger now. Um, and then we had Ken Boddy. Ken Boddy. Came out yeah. and did um, uh, an interview with me. And then a reporter from uh, the Oregonian, uh, I think that was the first time I met D. Lane, who later oh, did sure. that article on... Yeah. Blueprint for Islam. So what happened was, in one day, March 4th, I get on the news, and they played the hell out of it. Channel mm-hmm. 6 played the hell out of that that piece. You know what I mean? Like, this young black guy is over in Northeast Portland trying to 
you know, get people to buy over there. Mm-hmm. Even Ken thought it was crazy. And mm-hmm. Neil Kelly was just blown away. I spent like two hours with him that day. And what were you talking about with these guys? You were just talking about the, the market dynamics, the quality of the yeah, houses. Yeah, I told that. And... Well, yeah, I, all of that stuff. Uh, but mostly, I would just say, you know, if we if we're gonna change this place around, we got to get new people mo- moving in. Mm. Uh, Neil Kelly told me to buy a bunch of real estate, and at that time I was so naive and young. I go, I can't buy. If I bought all the properties that people threw at me. Mm-hmm then it would just stay the same. Mm. I need to sell this to the public. I need mm. people to come over here and take ownership. Mm-hmm. And I used to have this slang. Um, all I cared about was if people would come over and just cut their grass. Mm-hmm. I used to tell people all the time, can you imagine what that house is going to look like when you cut the grass? You know? Mm-hmm. And uh, So you you started the gentrification of Northeast Portland. Well, that's what a lot of people all, say yeah. I did. And, I, and I, don't, I don't shy away from it because by June of 1989, three months later, I had 135 listings. Wow. On the market at once, wow. and you couldn't go anywhere in inner northeast Portland for three years and not see my name. And what kind of buyers were you getting? Because you started getting buyers. I started getting buyers. A lot of them were people I went to high school with. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were uh, young people. I uh, did commercials. I think you, sh- you saw a couple of those commercials I posted online. Uh-huh. I did commercials, um, and I was just talking about the value. Back then, you could buy a house, even with the higher interest rates, you could buy a house for like, you know, 50 grand, and your monthly payment would be lower than what it would cost to rent. You know what I'm talking about? And black people, they didn't give a damn. This is Northeast Portland. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If they could qualify for a house anywhere but in the Northeast, anywhere. But white people, hey, that's not bad. Mm-hmm. If we buy a big old house over here, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And th- as I started selling a lot, and then that's when I got lucky, and the media started following me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, neighbors started following me. I was selling houses like crazy. Um, I was selling houses. Uh, let's just say this. I, for about five straight years, six years, I don't know how much sleep I got. Wow. I stopped working at Franz Bakery in 1989, um, December 1989. And um, from 1989 to 93, 94 is a blur. So now what were these new buyers like? Younger usually, Mm -hmm. my age. Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes a little older, but let's say under 40. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually people starting out. Mm-hmm. Who didn't want to spend a hundred thousand or a hundred and fifty thousand? And were they white? Most of them were white. And, I didn't care. And were they out of towners or were they? Were a lot more... of out of towners, but a lot of in towners. The in towners mm-hmm. were people I usually went to school with. Okay, so but people you actually knew. They actually knew. But the the people from out of town were people who didn't perhaps have a bias against the neighborhood to begin. Like, like well, I'm, no, no, I, no, no, I moved no, no. in the it neighborhood. Has, it has nothing to do with bias. They didn't think this area was bad. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. They it, didn't. It's it's not bad. Like they, people th- told me when I moved into Northeast Portland in '98 or '98, people said you couldn't pay me. To buy a house in that neighborhood. I'm from New Jersey. I'm like, man, that neighborhood's That's a walk in the park, say. man. Guys <laughs> like, like you. No. It's a guys lovely like neighborhood. You from places like New Jersey, <laughs> yeah. New York, Chicago, Detroit. They came to inner northeast Portland and this was nothing. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? This was like, hey, I can hang with this. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is no no big deal. They were taking their bars off. Mm-hmm. All the black folks in Northeast were thinking they were crazy. Hey, did you see that guy? He just took the bars off the windows. Right, you know, right. What, what is he thinking? He's going to get robbed. You know what I mean? Rarely ever happened. Right. Because you know? like I said, these gang members were more bad boys than they were thugs. Mm-hmm. The thugdom didn't come for several more years. Mm-hmm. You understand? This is what I'm trying to explain right. to people. It, it is, this is what black gangs did, and this is why to this day I hate them. Black gangs made black people choose for self-preservation to l- remove themselves from the black community. They wanted to out. And, and look, I was afraid. I was afraid of my family getting hurt. I was really never afraid of me getting hurt because I'm a, you know, an idiot Marine. There's a common factor that I noticed that you have 
that gave you a privilege like you said you went to the marines you got a certain level of training being a military kid your mm -hmm. mindset was different but it was a trained mindset mm -hmm. to have a more excellent mindset so as you started to notice the brain drain like with the gangs you know mm -hmm. we want them out but we're also taking out the fluid people the people who we who we really actually need in the community at what point was there a decision to say okay we need to do something to keep was there ever like let's put on the brakes let's try to keep some black people here it wasn't until the late 90s and i gotta explain something to you you're, you're right you gotta remember i was young i was 23 when, yeah you know yeah and all i was talking about was thinking about was self-preservation and getting the hell out yeah. now you're right you stand back and you look back as you mature and you go through some experiences and then things do change when you get a kid you know what i'm talking about then you understand what it like I was telling everybody, when my daughter started breathing, then I learned what it meant to about killing somebody's kid. You know, I'm talking about when you're 23, yeah. you're a kid yourself. You were in survival mode. It was but, all but survival But looking mode. back now, as like Andrew was asking, are there things yeah. that you would have done differently in this particular you know campaign that you had? And I was talking campaign. about this with some other friends the other day. This is the opportunity that, you know, I overlooked at the time. I couldn't see it because I was in survival mode. What I should have done is I should have gone the direction that... Um, uh, what's his name? Um, Chris Gwynn went. Chris Gwynn created a brick and mortar real estate company. I never aspired to have something like that. I just went, oh, okay. you know, talking about. And I look back and I go, man, if, you know, if I could have gotten more black people who own real estate to get into selling real estate, mm -hmm. you, you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. But a 23 year old man is not going to think about that, especially one that's scared mm -hmm. and frustrated. My frustration is I didn't want to be here. I mean, that's why I'm honest with it. I don't, it. This story that developed for me wasn't some, like I woke up and said, I'm going to go on some crusade and make all yeah. of inner Northeast Portland, you know. I, I wasn't that mature. Yeah, it was like a real estate version of, um, what do they call that, a uh, slash and burn campaign. Yeah, kind of like that. Scorched earth. Scorched earth. It was, all, it was, it was a scorched earth mentality in, in real safe. estate. And then every time I sold a house, I felt I owed uh, people who I sold a house to, um, I owed them something. Mm. I bought a bar simply to get rid of a strip club. Mm. You know, I bought this bar over in North Portland. My name, the people I sold houses to knew I was like this. This guy puts a strip club on Greeley and Ainsworth and they wouldn't stop. Mm -hmm. So they say, Fred, can you go over and talk to him? See if he'll, you know, if you can convince him to stop being, you know, strip mm -hmm. club. So I go in there, there's this old white guy I go in there and trying to talk to him about not having a strip club there. I said, you know, it's really not a good spot. You know, it's kind of a family neighborhood and everything. And the guy totally played me. I mean, he played me like a fiddle. <laughs> he goes, look, I'm a white guy. You're a black guy. Black guy should never come into a white guy's business and tell him how to run it. Now, if you had the money to buy this business, I'd sell it to you. But we know <laughs> there's no nigger in this neighborhood that's got the money to buy this bar. You see how he played me? Yeah, he got you. I sit up there and go, you say what? <laughs> Do you know who I am? I'm Fred Stewart. He says, Fred shit. You know, I mean, he was like playing me hard. I go, I am Fred Stewart, the most successful black real, oh, whatever. If you were so successful, you'd make me an offer that I couldn't <laughs> refuse. Until you can do that, get along you know young man make a long story short 15 minutes later i'm buying a bar a strip club you know what i'm talking about i had to run that strip club for a month before i could shut it down and uh first thing i did when it became mine officially was i turned it to a neighborhood bar and it's, st it's still the neighborhood bar i don't own it anymore but you know what that he played me because i mean he told me later he knew who I was the moment I walked sure, he knew in. Who you were. And he yeah. goes, I know why you were there. Sure. I knew. And I'm like, all right. I know he's got the money. I'm going to yeah. get this boy to buy me out. And he says, but I knew if I just told you, hey, Fred, you know, I'm for sale. You may even say, hey, I'll list it for you. No, right, I right. want it out. And he goes, I knew if I challenged you the right way, you'd buy it because you were always doing what you could. And, you know, I, I look back at this and this is, I do now look at it as a compliment. He goes, Fred, I knew you were always going to do what you thought you could do to make the area better. And I knew if I got you to buy it, I knew you were going to, you know, do the right thing with it. So he says, my whole goal with you that day 
was to make sure you didn't walk out <laughs> without so, buying my place. So indeed, the neighborhood starts to get better, and I, I don't want to. Yeah. Okay. So nope. the neighborhood starts mm -hmm. to get better, and people are buying homes. But I just want to step back just one more time. Mm -hmm. But I want to get us forward as well. Um, many people, we were talking about just redlining for a second there. Um, and Red people say the reason why the neighborhood was was depressed and was redlining. Do you agree? And how did you get around well, that? As some people were saying there's still redlining I got, going I got on. Around redlining, I got around redlining with two things. The VA loan, God bless them. And uh, mortgage companies. Mm-hmm. Mortgage companies um, really didn't redline. The nature of a mortgage company is they don't exist if they don't do a loan. So redlining was never that deep with mortgage companies. With but they couldn't get backed by the FHA if they had um Well, we couldn't do FHA loans then because back in 30 years ago, the minimum loan you could get for FHA was 30 grand. Right. No, 35 grand. So if your house is 25,000, you couldn't get an FHA. You could get a conventional loan. Mm. But then back then, a conventional loan you had to put down twenty percent. That means five, right. you know, five thousand bucks, and then you had to have excellent credit. Mm -hmm. And conventional loans back then are so much different than they are today. So you they're, don't blame they're, they're financial banks. institutions for I don't for trust the depression, banks, banks but mortgage companies. I do trust mortgage companies. Mortgage companies, there's a uh, there was next to no redlining with them back then. There's and I tell people if you find a mortgage company that redlines, don't tell them. Tell me first, because I know how to sue them. And we will share the profits. It is, you know, no, they don't. There's really no redlining among. I, I think banks are still redlining. They're so, they, they've got such a sophisticated operation. It takes a lot of energy and effort to prove it. But did you but feel like mortgage companies don't? Did you feel like I am selling properties to white folks here, even though I know that it's harder for black folks if they did want to buy these properties? It would be harder for them, or they wouldn't even I be able to. I didn't feel that way with mortgage companies because mortgage companies weren't harder for black people. And so you were directing people to mortgage, mortgage companies company. rather than banks. I hated banks. Okay. I, I bet I haven't done a hundred loans with banks in my entire career. So over the and next, I only did every every single one of those. Oh, hold it, all but ten. I did it and under duress. Like my client said, "This is who I'm working with." You know what I'm talking about? And I have no choice. There are about ten I did as a favor to Eric Sten. Mm -hmm. And Ralph Nickerson, you understand, because they were doing this new program. I gave you that that, that pamphlet. Yeah, yeah. I participated in that. Right. Out of you know our friendship, but you can ask anybody who's been around me for years. I never refer anybody to a bank. So, I don't trust them to this day. So, but mortgage companies didn't redline. So let's go forward then to today and say, well, now you've got you know depending on how the next census will read, people are speculating you could have some neighborhoods with 90% of the African-American population has, has left for one reason or another. 60% oh, yeah. clearly by uh, 2015. Yeah. No, we, Is there something that should have been done differently when you look back from the- from Several things. One- Big view. One, um, and one of the big one is when Gretchen Kafuri and Jim Francisconi ended redlining. They didn't know they did it, and I didn't know they did it for several years. It wasn't like there was a uh, celebration. You know, mm -hmm. redlining is over with, right? Um, they ended redlining in 1991. And I tell everybody, if you look at 1991 forward, it got crazy. You understand? Mm -hmm. Houses started doubling in prices all over the place, right? And that was because banks banks redlined even with mortgage companies. Let me explain to you this how, how this happened. You've got, back then, mortgage companies that got their money from private investors, got their money from hedge funds, got their monies from banks, okay? So the only areas where mortgage companies would redline is they would know if there was a loan product that was with a bank, they knew they, the bank wouldn't buy it if it had an address from over here. Mm -hmm. So they would then, a mortgage company would try to sell it to a hedge fund or a private investor. You see what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. To get it to the secondary mortgage you know, market. Mm -hmm. And that's where Countrywide became such a big deal around here. Countrywide, when they first hit our market, spearheaded in the inner north and northeast Portland. Mm -hmm. You understand? Spearheaded. Uh, Bev White was their first underwriter, president for the, this region. Jumped straight into an Amundsen mortgage, Continental mortgage, uh, Centrust mortgage. They all spearheaded in the inner northeast Portland. So they should have made it wide, widely known that redlining or that it was easier to get a loan now. Yeah, the mortgage companies never re really redlined. It was always the banks. And so you're saying that, that 
black folks in the neighborhood didn't know didn't. that that it was now easier to get a loan um, after 1991. Didn't know. Did, didn't know. And and see, I wish I'd done more to market that fact in the inner northeast. I, the problem, the reason why I didn't was I didn't work with very many buyers back then, as far as directly. Mm. I was a listing broker. Right. So I put properties in the market, and buyers brokers would you know bring the buyers. I think if I worked with buyers more back then, I probably would have done more. Is that the only thing, though, that, that no, you no, think no. went wrong? No, no, no. I, I'm still blaming a lot of stuff on the early days, uh, 88 to 93. Those years, those three years where the city could have crushed black gang members. Could mm -hmm. have crushed it. So that's it. Going forward from, from 1991 mm -hmm. on to today, where there's been just a massive... Yeah dismantling of this community some uh, no, would say no, no no let me finish another one i blame the black leadership for the pitiful things they did to our education system over here our education system was so bad that it put it like this i never went to a school in this neighborhood my mother would never allow me to go to a school in this neighborhood i went to schools outside of the neighborhood and see and that breaks up the fabric of the community i was lucky i don't regret it because i made some great lifelong friends you understand what I'm talking about? So I can't say as a kid it, it hurt me. But when you look at, uh, a, you know, a community, when you're sending your kids, the smartest kids especially, out of the community, you understand what I'm talking about? You're taken away from that community. Well, the black leadership back then forced that. Mm -hmm. You understand? With some of their stupid requests that white people who were racist said, oh, you want to do that? Yeah, I'll let you have that. <laughs> it's going to screw you up, and I don't care, because I don't care about those black kids. And they did. What else? Um, what do you call it? It didn't help putting up the medium on MLK. It shut mm -hmm. down a lot of black businesses. That's not talked about. And yeah, remember, the black businesses along MLK weren't included in that decision. The the When the city decided to do that, it was kind of one of those things, they guess what? We're going to put a medium, and people are no longer going to be able to turn left into your parking lot. You know, there was a lot of that. That shut down a lot of black businesses. That really, people don't talk about that enough. Um, but then, like I said, the redlining issue, I wish the politicians at the time, they're all Democrats, unfortunately, had paid closer attention to what redlining was doing. We had all these black families that owned it was not uncommon for me to come across a black family that owned 10, 20 pieces of home, mm -hmm. you know, real estate. Not unheard of, you know what I'm mm -hmm. talking about? But think about it, you could own 20 pieces of real estate back then and not be worth 100,000 bucks. Matter of mm -hmm. fact, if somebody came to you and said, you own 20 houses, I'm gonna give you 95,000. That deal may have gone. <laughs> you know, that deal may have worked. Huh, 20 houses, 95,000? Honey, what do you think? You know what I'm talking about? That would have been, considered, you know, by some people. Um, I can't help but think that some economists understood when we're selling houses in Lowerhurst for 100000 but we're selling houses in Piedmont for 20000 that there's an equity difference. You, you understand something about that, that gets in the way of creating more equity. Like I was saying, FHA in 1988, uh, in, in, not nationwide, but Oregon-wide, you had to have a loan value of a minimum of 35000 they would do a loan of 30, you understand? But the value of the house had to be at least, you know, 35,000 bucks. Well, if the house is worth 20, you're right. not gonna apply for a loan you can't get. Do you think there were city policies that favored white investors, white businesses, and new newcomers rather than Only in the that supported the, of the existing money. businesses? Only in the respect of the money. If, you, if you're white and you had good seed money, mm -hmm. right? then yeah, you have an edge over everybody black. You know, I had uh, white families that were millionaires. I've had white families that bought one or two houses for their kids for a wedding present. Yeah, Not too many black families were doing that. They might give, they say, hey, you can rent it from me. I'll let you rent mm -hmm. one of the houses that we have and give me 200 bucks a month. But the kids, you know, the, the family wasn't in a position where they could just give, you know, even a $5,000 house away.
here and that in the in the early days when PDC, the city, its development arm, would um, enroll a black business in a program, they would require the the business owner to partner with someone in order to secure the taxpayer investment and that it was almost always a white partner and a lot of times the white partners would edge those folks out uh, you know i'm not no, saying no, who no, 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 never no. heard of that that's a completely different discussion first i would tell you you're 100 percent right okay but that's a completely different discussion that goes into the commercial viability pdc didn't really jump into housing until the late 80s early 90s and and it was really through the nonprofits that they invested in and, and Gretchen Kafori and Eric Sten and those guys. But if you want to get into the damage that PDC did, um, that's a completely different discussion. So you don't dispute any of the charges against the, the charges against urban renewal targeting black neighborhoods and that the don't investment in commercial bit. district but was. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of moving pieces. That's a mm-hmm. whole that's a whole nother discussion. You, you understand? <laughs> I mean, that's like it, well, okay. in its own right. So the city citizen not only did not recognize leadership that was there uh, or support it yeah yeah, um but they they had programs that either through design or just through the momentum of racial bias discriminated pushed out or or just closed off opportunities and and white and the white people who ran pdc and the mayor's office you know this is the tough thing about being black in a town like this i mean do i think uh vera katz was racist I don't think Vera Cass was racist. She did a lot to help black people and stuff. But in that area, she was no help. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you in the could, area of commercial development, commercial development. And, and wealth creation. Did she business. put a lot of gang members in prison? Yes. Did she put the police station over there? Yes. Did she sign off on some other things that helped? You know, like uh, self-enhancement. By the way, that's Ray Larry, too. Self-enhancement. They were partners. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but the point is, what I'm saying is that, yeah, but when it came down to, hey, Vera, what PDC is doing with this program this is having a negative impact on the community, and this is why. Those type of things were like, you might as well spit in the wind. They, so, it was like they didn't understand it. But I do feel they understand it. You understand what I'm talking about? I mean, even though they were acting like they didn't understand it, I feel they understood. They just didn't care. So that, that gets us kind of to the to the, the wrap-up topic, which is just, here we are today. Um, do you think, what do you think of the current, Political system here, um, in, in its in its ability to address the needs of of this community, horrid going forward, horrid. What what should happen? Well, it's the same message I tell everybody: you've got to pay attention to the performance of the people you vote for. I mean, with somebody who's never been in office before, you know, you got to listen. You got to in your gut, hey, I'm going to vote for this person because I think they can do it, and that's great. That's how people get into politics, but. Four years later, you have to ask yourself, has that person delivered? You understand? Has that person delivered? And if they haven't, vote for somebody else. There's, there was a, up until very recently, there was like a pathological prohibitation of the city working with black business owners in a meaningful way. They, that's why I tell everybody, they spent about a billion dollars of urban renewal money in inner north and northeast Portland. Not even 20 million bucks I can find was spent with black business people. I see all these white, and I don't, and I, when I say this, I don't want white people who hear this who benefited to feel guilty because this is a competitive world and they didn't understand the dynamics of what's going on. You know what I'm talking about? If you work hard and achieve something, you deserve it. But if you want to change from the future, you got to pay attention to this. How in the world did the state of Oregon allow the city to spend that much money in a minority community and not spend it with the people who live in that minority community? You you, you understand? I mean, how did that happen? If you're not racist, if you're a white person and you're in politics in the last 35, 40 years and you're not racist, the first thing I'd say to them, and I do say them because I know who they are. Why did that happen? <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about? So other communities facing these issues, say, a few years behind us, meaning there's maybe there's still neighborhoods that need investment and people see see investment coming in, getting at the, the beginning of this curve. Mm-hmm. As, as the, the exit question, the last thing yep. you have for our listeners, mm-hmm. what would you say? 
They got to make sure everybody's included. They got to look at, they got to follow the money. You know, even, you know, in this city, it was easier for somebody that's white to move into this town to get support, build partnerships than it was for black people. Think about all the black people who sold their property simply because they couldn't do nothing with it. You understand? I mean, they own the property. And most times, if you own the property, that's where your opportunity is. When you have a redlining situation going on, and sometimes you've got it residentially and commercially, like we had it. Sometimes you got it just commercially, like you have in places like Chicago and stuff like that. Um, if you've got the property, that's usually an opportunity. If you've got a community where you've got the property, but you can't do nothing with it, the leaders in the community have got to address why you can't do nothing with it. You, you see what I mean? And that's why I'm saying a lot of black people sold out when they didn't want to be around black gangs. They didn't see it getting better. I mean, black gangs was like the hammer. It was like, okay, we've hit the wall and we're never going to get back up. You know what I mean? We are now decimated. Plus, they're looking at the real estate they've got. It's not like they can say, I'm going to put a coffee shop in it or a sandwich shop you know, in it or I'm going to lease it to a... Uh, an accounting company, you, know, you understand? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like that at all. Because even if you had somebody interested, who is going to pay for the TIs? When you've got lease rates that are at 50 cents a foot per year, so think about it. So make sure you include the community when you invest in well, the community. Well, you, you have to make sure you include the community when you invest in it. It has to be a concerted effort. You, you understand? And you can't let yourself fall off that off that tip there's no there's no reason for urban renewal to exist in a blighted community if you're not going to invest in the people who are already there i'm not saying exclusively but gee whiz we would go several years and not invest in anybody from this area at all <laughs> well red mm -hmm. thank you very much we appreciate this time all right and um that's all the show we have for you today. Yeah, it's a good show. It's a really good show. A lot of information to take in. Yeah. So. A lot of information and to take in. And, and when you guys catch us, like I said, I say things on Facebook and here. I want people to think because I want things to get better. You know what I mean? I want somebody out there to say, Fred went through this. This is what Fred should have done. You, you know what I'm talking about? Right. The, the, the looking back, I don't want somebody necessarily to say, you know, I mean, the things I did right, yeah, I want people to do that. You understand? But I also want people to go, you know, Fred did this. And it worked out okay. But you know what? If he had done this, it would have worked out better. See, that's what we didn't have in front of me when I came here. You know what I mean? Elders that, that wanted to leave. The, well, they were all dead. All the ones that were, all of our and black that, leaders that were, like, incredible, by the time I came around, they were all dead. <laughs> well, that is all the time we have for the show today. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube. And we'll have more show for you in the coming weeks we you well you will hear from us again yes <laughs>